Ah yes, you're listening to Life 101, where we live in faith every day. This is Line Upon Line, where we study God's Word line by line. And I'm your host, Pastor Adrian. Isaiah in Isaiah 28 verses 9 and 10 says, Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? And then he answers, Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little and there a little. So if you're serious about your walk with God, and you want to understand true doctrine, it's time to get your Bible and follow along as we study God's Word. It's time to be weaned from the milk. Get your Bible, tell a friend, tell your pastor about this study, and let's get into God's Word, line upon line. Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's uh, let's begin in Acts chapter 19. And you'll remember uh, that the tail end of Acts chapter 18, we came across Apollos. And it said here, a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, which is in Egypt, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures. So he really knew his scriptures. He came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. So that's all he had was the baptism of John, the, the preaching that John brought, and the, the call to repentance. And he understood then the prophecies pertaining to our Lord. And so based on the, the ministry of John and, and the scriptures that he had and the prophecies that he understood, he was powerfully proclaiming the way of the Lord. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly, so or more completely. They, they basically gave him the missing component that he didn't have so that he could really understand Jesus Christ and the gospel of the kingdom. And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much which had believed through grace. So he was a real asset. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, so he's doing this publicly, showing by the scriptures that in fact Jesus was the Messiah. Now we come into 
Acts 19 on the heels of Apollos doing such great work. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, uh, and, and we'll just remember here, here or just to finish the sentence, while he was at Corinth, Paul having passed through the upper coast came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples. So just remember our map then, you can see Corinth just under Achaia. Uh, that's where Apollos stays and Paul has sailed on to Ephesus. And we remember now um, when we actually look at when we actually look at the um, first chapter of Corinthians when Paul wrote to the Corinthians. So Apollos stays at, in, in Corinth. Paul's gone on to Ephesus, and then you remember that Corinth was a very divisive, divisive church, divisive congregation. And so Paul wrote to them, "I'm begging you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you." but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared unto me of you, my brethren, I basically got a bad report, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that, that every one of you says, I am of Paul and I of Apollos. So Paul was a powerful preacher of truth. Apollos was a powerful preacher of truth. And the Corinthians were now starting to divide over who they're following. Some are followers of Paul, some are followers of Apollos, some are of Cephas, of Peter, and some are, you know, I'm of Christ. Paul asked the question, is Christ divided? Don't do this. It's the Holy Spirit that Christ sends, and we're all members of the same body, and Christ is not divided. It's a rhetorical question, and it's asked in such a way that the obvious answer is no. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul so that he just is beside himself that people are following him and and, and holding him up to the same level as Christ I, I, he's saying I wasn't I wasn't crucified for you and you weren't baptized in the name of Paul and says and then he says in fact I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius lest any should say that I baptized in my own name and that's why they're followers of Paul. So let's just go back here then to Mark. Sorry, I just have a problem here with the uh, scripture. So we were in um, 1 Corinthians and Acts 19. I wanted to get to Acts 19 too, but I can just see where I just have, just give me one, one moment here and I'll just put this uh, in here. I wanted to get to Acts 19. See what's happened here. That should do it. Okay, so we'll come back to Acts 19 now, verse 2. Um, so he says to these disciples that he came across. Uh, so Apollos is in Corinth, he's in Ephesus. He comes to these disciples and he says to them, Have you received the Holy Spirit? since you believed. So they're now followers of Christ. And, and Paul wants to know, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they said to him, we don't even, we have not so much as heard if, if, there, isn't, if there is even a Holy Spirit. We, we don't know what you're talking about. We, we, we just know that we have to repent and we now follow, the, we've now followed Jesus Christ. We believe in Christ, uh, Jesus as the Messiah, but we don't know anything about this Holy Spirit. And he said unto them, unto what then were you baptized? So that he, know, he knows that they were baptized, but they have no clue about the Holy Spirit. So he's curious, like, so what were you baptized into then? And they said, 
unto John's baptism. And so if we look at Mark now, the Gospel of Mark, he opens with John's baptism. So, so Mark comes out swinging. If you, if you look at Matthew, Matthew begins with this long genealogy and wants us to understand the legitimacy of Christ's uh, claim to the throne of David. And so he, he begins with this long um, uh, genealogy. Mark doesn't do that. Mark just, boom, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before your face, which shall prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord, that the Lord is coming. Make his path straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. So that was John's uh, mission. That was his ministry to just come proclaiming that Jesus Christ is coming, that the Lord is coming. And so there went out unto him all the land of Judea. So, so he was such a powerful preacher that people came to him and, and responded to his message and they of Jerusalem. And they were all baptized of him in the river Jordan. And so he went through this, this calling and this, this uh, ministerial call to repentance, to prepare the way of the Lord. And so they all came to him and believed that in fact, uh, Jesus or, or the, the, the Messiah was coming. And so they came to be baptized of him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins and repenting of their sins. And John was clothed in camel's hair and with a girdle of skin about his loins. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, there comes one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So somehow these disciples that Paul came across in Ephesus, they completely uh, missed this part of the message that when Christ comes, he, that when the Messiah comes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so they completely lost that part. They got the part about repentance and they got the part about baptism. And so they were baptized into this call for repentance, but missed the Holy Spirit, didn't even know what it was. And so now um, Mark, as I said, comes out swinging and just, you know, as it's, as it's written in the prophets, he is of course referring to uh, the prophet Malachi, who, who um, basically is the last prophet, the last scripture, the last revelation that the last message that the Israelites received before this 400 year period of silence. So after Malachi, there's silence until Christ. Oh, sorry, I should say until John the Baptist. And so Mark just picks it up right from there to say, this is now the fulfillment of the prophecy that Malachi gave. And we'll just read the specific part of the prophet Malachi in chapter three, where he says, behold, I will send my messenger, speaking of John the Baptist, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. So, so John the Baptist is a harbinger. John the Baptist is a signal that the Lord is coming. And, and when the Lord comes, it's, it's not going to be an easy time. It's going to be a very difficult time. So when John arrives, it's a call to repentance to prepare for the Lord. So he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand 
when he appears. So they desire him, they want him, but the scripture is asking, can you stand when he appears? And why does it ask that? It says here, but who may abide the day of his coming and who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. So something that really gets in and, and cleanses. And he shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. So a couple of things going on here. First of all, he says here, that uh, he's going to prepare the way before me. I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. So the Lord will come suddenly. Now, there's always these hidden intervals in prophecy. And he will come suddenly. He says he's going to come like a thief in the night. He will come suddenly. But there's this 2,000 year period that we've had between his first coming and his coming to purify the sons of Levi. So God is patient. God, God doesn't want any to perish. And sometimes we mistake God's patience for, for thinking that he's broken his promises. God never breaks his promises. And he will fulfill every single one. But he's patient. And so when he says he's going to come suddenly, it doesn't mean John the Baptist appears and then suddenly uh, you know, the, 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 the Messiah comes to do this job of refining the sons of Levi. Nope. They, what, they, what they missed was the whole spring holy day plan. And so if the first coming of Christ, he comes, and he comes as a lamb to be slaughtered, as a mercy to the sons of Levi, as a mercy to Israel, as a mercy to the whole world, until the day of trumpets, which is going to be fulfilled with his uh, second coming. Now, in addition to that, he says he's going to purify the sons of Levi. And that's really important as we end the Old Testament with this repeated failure of the Israelites to live up to the covenant and this, this repeated uh, faithlessness. That's how we end. The book of Malachi is basically a, a condemnation of Israel uh, for their faithlessness. And what it says here, he's going to come and he's going to purge them as gold and silver. Why? So that they may offer unto the Lord an offering of, in righteousness. And he, he's called the messenger of the covenant. And so there's a covenant that God has with Israel and he's going to keep that covenant and unfortunately for for Levi and for Israel they have to be purified in order for them to fulfill their part of the covenant and so what God is saying here is as much as they are rebellious as much as they have turned away from him he's going to purify them and lead them to repentance so that they can in fact be that kingdom of priests to the world and help to bring the whole world to God so he says then at this time when he purifies them and we actually see that purification process in the prophet Zechariah that shows what's going to happen to Judah uh, just before uh, Christ returns to the point where if you look at Zechariah 12 they're actually going to now acknowledge Christ him whom they have pierced as their savior and they are going to be purifying themselves when we look in Revelation we see uh, 12,000 uh, from each tribe have, having purified themselves, having repented, and being prepared now to receive their Lord. And so, at that time shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old. 
and as in the former years. So this is the plan. God has not forsaken Israel. He has not forsaken Judah. He is going to restore them, uh, not just Judah uh, and Levi and Benjamin, which we, you know, we call them the southern tribe, the, the tribe of Judah today, but all of the tribes, the lost tribes, are going to be brought back as well. And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers. And this is, this is what uh, John the Baptist would have been preaching against. I'm going to be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, that turn aside the stranger from his right and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So all of this sin that is in Israel, God is saying he's going to, be a, he's going to come suddenly and he's going to be a swift witness against all of this sinfulness. So before he comes, though, he sends this uh, uh, messenger before him, John the Baptist, to signal to them that this judgment is coming. So when John the Baptist comes and he starts preaching out of Malachi, uh, they will realize that time is short and they need to come to repentance. And now notice this last uh, verse in this passage. For I am the Lord and I don't change. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. And a lot of people think they try to get into Greek philosophy here that, you know, God is so spiritual and he'll never change. And they try to impose Greek philosophy on the text. But that's not what the text is saying. What the text is saying, he's, he's, a messenger, he's the messenger of the covenant. It's all about the covenant. And because when God makes a promise, he always keeps it. And so this covenant that he has with Israel, he's going to keep this covenant that he has with Abraham, the, the covenant with Israel was conditional, they broke it, so now he has a new covenant with Israel because of the unconditional covenant that he has with Abraham. And because of that unconditional covenant with Abraham, he says, because I don't break my promise, because I never break a covenant, that's why you sons of Jacob are not consumed. You deserve to be destroyed. You're sorcerers, you're adulterers, you're thieves, you're liars, you're breaking all of the commandments, you should be destroyed. But because of the covenant, and because, of, because God never breaks a promise, instead, they're going to be led through the refiner's fire, they're going to be purified, they're going to be brought to repentance, and they're not going to be destroyed. So the, the Old Testament ends with a promise to Israel that they won't be destroyed. But judgment is going to come on them. And so Mark opens his gospel swinging, that here is the messenger that comes before the Lord, that comes before the judgment. So when you see John the Baptist, judgment is coming on Israel. So coming back now to Acts 19. Then said Paul, John truly baptized with the baptism of repentance. So they're explaining to him the baptism that they took, which was a baptism of repentance. And Paul acknowledges that that was in fact a valid baptism, saying unto the people, that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. So he's explaining that the whole purpose of John coming was so that you would believe in Jesus and in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And when they heard this, they were then baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And my, my colleague, my, my co-pastor, uh, Murray Palmatier, uh, pointed this scripture to me because sometimes we have people coming into our fellowship who have been baptized in another uh, traditional Christian church and uh, they didn't know anything about the Ten Commandments so they didn't understand sin 
And so they repented, not understanding sin, but they were baptized. And then they'll come into our fellowship and think that they don't need to be baptized again. And Pastor Murray points to the scripture to say, here are people who were baptized by John. It was a valid baptism, but they didn't understand the Holy Spirit. And so when they came to understand the Holy Spirit, they were baptized again. And so sometimes we do need to be humble. Sometimes people feel that, you know, if I'm baptized again, then does that call into question my life um, with God before? Uh, when I was baptized before, is, was my walk with God invalid um, because I was baptized before? I think we just have to be humble and follow the process. It's a critical process. And so that's what these brethren did. And when Paul then laid hands on them after they were baptized, uh, the Holy Spirit came, uh, came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied and all the men were about 12. So it's interesting that we see in Acts 2 uh, when the Holy Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost that they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. And then I believe it was in Acts 13, uh, I'm not exactly sure if that's, that's the chapter, when we had the Gentiles who were then baptized. If it's not 13, it's, I think it's Acts 10. Uh, they were then baptized. And the same thing happened with Cornelius and his household, where before, in fact, in that case, before they were baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they spoke in tongues and prophesied as a confirmation that um, God had, in fact, given the uh, access to the Gentiles to come into the covenant. And now we see the same thing happening here. And perhaps it's just, again, to validate that the baptism of John was, was in fact valid because all Judea came to John uh, to, be, to repent and to be baptized. And now we see them having to be baptized again in order to receive the Holy Spirit. And so it's just this sort of confirmation that the baptism of John was preparatory but insufficient. And they really needed to be baptized again. And so that could be communicated to everybody that Jesus Christ or Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And then for some reason in verse uh, 7, Luke finds it necessary to tell us that there were about 12 men. I'm not sure why that is, but we know that 12 is an important number. You know, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, you know, 12 times 12,000, uh, the 144,000. And so, you know, maybe this is just to show that th this is in fact a complete transition now from the baptism of John to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not sure about that, but again, Luke finds it significant to write to Theophilus uh, to tell him about this and that, that there were 12. And so he went into the synagogue, and this is, in, this is interesting as well, verse 8. It says, he went into the synagogue, and he spoke boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. And, and again, we have Christians among us that believe, you know, we shouldn't enter into debate. We should mind our own business. We should keep our head down. We should be invisible. And you see, Apollos was preaching publicly, disputing publicly. And Paul was preaching and disputing publicly. And what's interesting here, and I, you know, as, as a result of the debate that we did last week with the Muslim community, um, it's interesting to see here that Paul was disputing, debating with these brethren in the synagogues for three months. And I think that's something that I picked up in the debate yesterday that, you know, in a single event, anybody can say anything and really get away with it. But if you're there over time, if we're going to have a part two and a part three and a part four, and people can go and fact check, 
People can go and search the scriptures to see if these things are so. It's much harder. You have to be much more careful about what you say because we're going to come back and we're going to fact check you and we're going to see if in fact what you're saying is true. And so over the course of three months, you know, the truth just stands. It gains momentum. Whereas falsehood over time, you know, initially it can appear, uh, sounds good, but over time it falls apart. And so it's very, very interesting that Paul is debating with these people in the synagogue for three months. And notice that he speaks boldly. It's boldly. The Holy Spirit enables us to be bold concerning the kingdom of God. So that's the content. He's either, it's either the kingdom of God or it's the divinity of Christ. It's the necessity of his suffering. It's the power of his resurrection. It's Christ and the kingdom. That's what Paul is constantly disputing with them. Now, he's there for three months explaining this to, to the Jewish people there. But when several were hardened, and that happens, you know, you're preaching the truth, but it's not for everybody. And so several were hardened and they didn't believe. Instead, they spoke evil of that way in, before the multitude. So Paul is bringing truth to the multitude. These people are speaking evil of this message to the multitude, trying to persuade them or dissuade them. He departed from them and separated to the disciples. So, so now he's left the synagogue with his disciples, and now he's disputing daily. So, you know, weekly in the synagogue, uh, now he's left them, and now it's daily he's debating in the school of one Tyrannus. And again, it's over time. It's not just one thing. It's over time, daily. So they can go and fact check and come back and fact check again and come back and search the scriptures to see if these things are so. And so there's some uh, person here, a Tyrannus, and perhaps again, uh, uh, Theophilus would know who this is and, and his school. And, and that's where Paul is. He's there in the school every single day debating and disputing and trying to show them from the scriptures that Jesus is Messiah. And this continued by the space of two years. So he was daily in the school for a two-year period teaching so that all they which dwelt in, dwelt, in, dwelt in Asia. So basically, if you look at Turkey today, that whole area uh, of Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. This man was very effective and just unstoppable. He was just so filled with this truth that everybody had to hear. And he was just relentless and, and uh, indefa indefatag in I forget the word, indefatigable. I, it's a long word. Anyway, he, he couldn't be fatigued. So uh, God wrought special miracles, and God wrought special miracles by the hand of Paul, by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons. And so just, just if you took something from his body and you gave it to the sick, they would be healed. And the diseases departed from them and evil spirits went out of them. So this man, Paul, was full of the Holy Spirit. And he's there preaching and debating and he's tireless. He's tireless. He's just nonstop showing them from the scriptures that Jesus is Christ. And at the same time, he is healing and not just touching them with his hands. If they even take a part of his clothing, they're healed. Now, Theophilus, having read the first volume of Luke, this, this is actually going to bring to mind 
what Luke wrote in chapter 8 about Christ. And a woman, having an issue of blood for 12 years, imagine that, every single day, not for a year, not for three, not for five years, for 12 years. This woman really suffered just bleeding constantly for 12 years, which had spent all her living upon physicians. So she wants to get better. She's taken all her savings and just going to every single physician she can and giving them whatever money she can. And they're all making promises. Yes, I think I can help you. It's just going to cost, you know, uh, 500 dinar or whatever the, the currency was. And, uh, you know, we'll try and help you. And so what she, this is her hope. So she's going to gather all her savings and give it to these physicians and neither could she couldn't be healed of anything none, none, none of them none of the physicians that she sought counsel with could heal her even though she gave them all her money she came behind the master and she touched the border of his garment and immediately her issue of blood clotted it just stopped she had been bleeding for 12 years she touched the hem of his garment and it just stopped. And Jesus said, who touched me? When all denied, Peter and they that were with him said, Master, the multitude throng you and, and they press you. And you say, who touched me? I mean, come on, everybody's touching you. And Jesus said, no, somebody has touched me. For I perceive that power has left me. Power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she wasn't hid, she came trembling and falling down before him, she declared unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him. So she explained the 12 years bleeding nonstop, all of her money being spent on physicians. And that's why she just had to touch him and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, daughter, be of good comfort. Your faith has made you whole, go in peace. So Theophilus would immediately have known, having read volume one, that something is going on with Paul. And again, what, what uh, Luke is doing here is he's legitimizing the ministry of Paul because Paul is now in Rome, he's on trial. And so uh, Luke is gathering all of this evidence to show the legitimacy of Paul's ministry. And so what you see in Christ, we now see in Paul. He's so filled with the Holy Spirit, he's preaching and teaching exactly what Christ uh, preached and taught. And also he has this miraculous power that Jesus Christ had. And so clearly Theophilus is getting it. This is a legitimate messenger of the Lord. So continuing now in Acts 19, then certain of the vagabond Jews and we think of uh, vagabond as a very negative connotation. If you call somebody a vagabond today, you're insulting them. But this is really just wandering Jews, uh, nomadic Jews. So they didn't really live anywhere. They just roamed. Uh, they were exorcists. So this is their profession. They made money casting out demons. They took upon them to call over them, which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus. So this is a new development. So they are exorcists. And now that Jesus is being proclaimed so powerfully by Paul all over Asia, uh, they're now using the Lord Jesus's name to help with the exorcism process. And they would say, we adjure you or we command you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. 
the same Jesus that Paul is preaching so powerfully, we command you uh, by, by this Jesus. Now, of these uh, wandering Jews, these exorcists, there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priests. So Sceva is a very uh, exalted or uh, esteemed, highly esteemed individual. He's chief of the priests. And these sons of Sceva, seven of them, were doing the same thing. They're also exorcists, and they're using the name of Jesus Christ to call out these evil spirits. So it seems like a lot of people were plagued by evil spirits at this time and in this location. And so uh, this would be very, you know, people are looking, it's the same way you saw the, the, uh, the woman who had this blood, uh, this issue for 12 years, and going to anybody who could help her. Well, these people who are vexed with evil spirits, they're desperate and they're gonna pay money to anybody who promises that they can um, remove these spirits and so just as extra credentials and a bit more um, clout, they're now using Jesus' name that everybody is turning to. People are repenting. People are hearing about Jesus Christ. And so they're including Jesus in their uh, credentials now in terms of removing these evil spirits. And the evil spirits, so they, so they, they, they do this. They call on Jesus' name to remove the evil spirit. And the evil spirit answered. And it said... Jesus I know, and Paul I know. And again, Luke is legitimizing the ministry of Paul. And so this, the evil spirit is now speaking to these sons of Sceva, and it's saying, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but who are you? <laughs> I have no clue who you are. And so, you know, you guys are just here to make money. You're just here to, you know, exalt yourself. And I guess, you know, if everybody's doing this and you're the sons of the chief priest, you've, you've got to kind of position yourselves as well. But we don't, we, we have no clue who you are. We, we just don't recognize, there's no power in you. Whereas they see the power in Paul and they, they obey him when he commands them in the name of Jesus Christ. But these guys are just charlatans. And so uh, the men in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded and again if you're a theophilus now and you're trying to understand why paul is being brought uh, to trial and potentially facing a death sentence and you see that the, the evil spirits themselves are acknowledging paul's ministry and, and, and they acknowledge Christ's ministry. You see the parallels between Paul's ministry and Christ's ministry. Theophilus is getting it. And these guys who are pretenders, who are not qualified to do this kind of work, it ends in disaster for them. So the men in whom the evil spirit, in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overcame them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. You know, we're the seven sons of Sceva, we're the sons of the high priest, we really are exalted people, and now they're stripped naked, humiliated, and have to run. And they've been wounded as well. And this became known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus. So this was a big story, and it went all over the place, and people realized the ministry of Paul is real. And fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. They really saw that this Jesus is the Christ 
and, and, and everybody's going to magnify his name whether they like it or not. And today we have a lot of opposition to Christ's name, but you know we're going to see what happened here happen everywhere. His name will be exalted and it will be magnified throughout the whole earth. And many that believed came and confessed their sins. They confessed their, their, their sins and they showed their deeds. And, and he says here, they confessed, they, they showed their deeds. So they confessed their sins and they showed what they were up to. So they, such fear fell on them about the Lord Jesus that they really had to just now present uh, what they were actually up to. And many of them, which used curious arts, so they were into magic and sorcery, they brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. That's how invested everybody was in this sorcery. So Ephesus was a real city of magic and sorcery and witchcraft and all these evil spirits and communing with these evil spirits. And when they saw the power of the name of Christ, they just repented. 50,000 pieces of silver, that's a lot of money. And so they took all of these books and, and burned them all. And so they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed here in the city of Ephesus. <clears throat> and after these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And we know that he'll be arrested in Rome, and, and, and Luke is just marching us through these different chapters to get us to Rome. Uh, so that Theophilus understands everything that led up to Paul coming to Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him. So he had two, two people assisting him, Timothy and Erastus. But he himself stayed in Asia for a season. So he sends them on. He stays in Asia. And the same time, there arose no small stir about that way, about, Christ, about what Paul was preaching. And a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, bought no small gain, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen. So he, you know, Diana was basically uh, the Greek form of Ishtar, of Semiramis, the ancient uh, mystery religion, and, and it was thriving in Ephesus. And this man would make shrines for these idols, and it, it made them a lot of money. These were very, very religious people. You saw just the books alone were 50,000 pieces of silver. So they were really into this. And they would buy these shrines and buy the idols and really live their life believing in this goddess Diana. And so they were making a lot of money. Whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, you know that by this craft we have our wealth. So they were very, very wealthy. And it's because of how they supported this cult worship. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul, this, this man was so powerful in his preaching. So not only at Ephesus, but throughout all Asia, 
This Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. So that not only this our craft is in danger, to be set at naught, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised. So, there, so, he, so he's trying to tell these men, we've got a crisis on our hands. You know what? Uh, this, this wealth that we've built, this income, this steady stream of income that we have, it is being jeopardized by this one Paul who's preaching throughout all Asia and convincing people to turn away from these idols that we manufacture. And so even the temple now is going to be despised. And so he says here, Moreover, you see in here that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are no gods which are made with hands. So that not only this our craft is in danger, to be set at nothing, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia, and notice the world, worships. So this uh, Ishtar, this Semiramis worship, it's not just in Ephesus, and it's not just all over Asia, it's all over the world. These men travel, they go all over the place, and she's called by different names, but this worship is everywhere. And now along comes Paul, uprooting the whole religious system. And, and we, you know, if, we, if we want a clue of what's going to happen here in Ephesus, we just have to look at the rest of Asia. It's almost like today we would say, if you, know, you, know, if you want to get a sense of what's going to happen to North America, look to Europe. What's going on in Europe? Because that's spreading and it's coming here. And so what he's saying is, look, to, look at Asia, guys. This is what Paul is doing. And it's going to come here into Ephesus. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath. And they cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. So they just really doubled down and buckled up here and just really ready to fight for Diana. And so they're just really emphasizing how great Diana is, that this Ishtar, this Semiramis is the true goddess. And, and we just really need to defend her honor and not allow Paul to make any inroads. And the whole city was filled with confusion. So the whole thing is now in an uproar. And having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. And when Paul would have entered in onto the people, the disciples wouldn't allow him. So he, he wants to now go in to the theater and deal with this head on. But the disciples understand the, the uproar, the, the state, the heightened uh, anxiety that these people are in. And they don't want Paul facing this. They know basically he'll, he'll be killed. And so they would not allow him to go into the theater. And certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, sent unto him, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater. So it seems like he had some connections here and they're really telling him, look, don't do this. Some therefore cried one thing and some another. So again, the whole city is in confusion. For the assembly was confused and the more part knew not therefore why they were even there so this is the problem with crowds you sort of uh, you get into a crowd and this kind of group think takes over 
And, and, you know, again, just the other day I was in uh, Pennsylvania and I just happened to get into the middle of an anti-Trump rally. And uh, you could just see so many people there just protesting and, and just really upset. And I, I was tempted to sort of pull some people aside and say, can, can I just sit down with you for a minute? I really want to understand what your issue is. Uh, did you even vote? Um, what is your concern? And I'm sure that if I had pressed, a lot of these people had no clue why they were there. It's just a big crowd and you get kind of caught up in the emotion. And that's why we need to be careful with uh, crowds and, and, and groupthink. And so the, the, the crowd has all come together. Everybody's in an uproar, but they, they're confused. They really don't even know why they're there. They, don't, they, don't, they really don't understand what the issue is. But the people who are making money at this, they're the ones who are stirring up the crowd because they have a, a great deal to lose. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander beckoned with the hand and would have made his defense unto the people. But when they knew that he was a Jew, all with one voice, so they realized that he's a Jew, he doesn't accept their religion. So now they're really in an uproar, all with one voice, about the space of two hours cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So just for two hours, they're just chanting. And, and you know, you can think today, uh, if you could see sort of a similar situation, analogy, where if you were a Muslim kind of caught up in a crowd and don't really know what the issues are, but everybody just starts, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, and you're just doing that for two hours, uh, you can see very, very similar uh, parallels to today. And so they just keep, you know, Diana Akbar, Diana Akbar uh, of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, you men of Ephesus, what man is there that doesn't know how the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana? So everybody knows this. And not just Diana, but the image which fell from Jupiter. So in addition to worshiping Diana, there was some sort of stone that fell from Jupiter, or, or they came from space and they claimed it was from Jupiter. That was part of their uh, narrative. Uh, that, that they worship this stone as well. And, you know, again today, we have this black stone in Mecca, which is, which is being kissed and, and, and touched and, and really honored uh, by the Arabs, and it's the same thing. They understand that this stone fell from space, and they put a different narrative around it. In, in, in the case of the Ephesians, it fell from Jupiter, but in the case of the Arabs, the story is told that it was sent down from space by God to Abraham and Ishmael to tell them the precise location of where to build the Kaaba. And so somehow we have to get Abraham in the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere, uh, with Ishmael. And, and this just does not stand up to the biblical text. And there is absolutely zero archaeological evidence to support this narrative. But you have to put a narrative around it. So the Ephesians put this narrative that the rock came from Jupiter. Here the Arabs put this narrative that God sent it from space to tell uh, Abraham where to build the Kaaba. But in any case, NASA, Western scientists, have confirmed that this black stone is not from Earth, that, that, it, that it comes from space. It's a, it's a meteorite. So it, was, it, it did fall from space. And uh, we have uh, many, many cultures who, who worship these stones 
and especially if they can find that they fell from from space and th there's some evidence that this very stone actually was um, transferred to Ar Arabia and that's why there's the, the pagans before Muhammad made such a big deal of it Muhammad then came along and just put a narrative around it basically saying that God sent it to uh, Abraham and all of that um, the cir circumambulation around this stone and the, the running back and forth and all these practices were what the pagans were doing hundreds of years before Muhammad was born uh, when he came along then he puts a narrative around it that makes it sound uh, biblical and and it's not it, it, it's actually rooted in paganism seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly so this um, leader here of the Ephesians is saying look everybody knows that the Ephesians worship Diana and everybody knows that the Ephesians worship the black stone so settle down S settle down he's really concerned that you're you're this this whole huge uproar that is completely unnecessary for you have brought here these men which are neither robbers of churches nor yet blasphemers of your goddess where if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are which are with him so this guy understands the root of the problem where it's coming from so Paul is not uh, or actually it's um the the gentleman they found who who was it Alexander uh, and others that they've captured is saying look if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any man the law is open you 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 have this uh, facility where you can bring your accusations so why don't they do that why are you causing a riot the law is open and there are deputies let them accuse one another so if there's an issue under the law come with your accusation that's how a civilized society works is basically what he's saying to them but if you inquire anything concerning other matters it shall be determined in a lawful assembly so so there's there are ways that we have of dealing with these issues and it's not to get into this heated frenzy and turn the whole city up into a, a riot now these craftsmen who had everything to lose they obviously wanted to do this and uh, in fact with with Mecca a lot of the opposition that Muhammad faced when he wanted to get rid of all these idols that were in uh, the Kaaba was for this very same reason people were making ton the, the Qureshi tribe were wealthy because of the very same reason people coming in and wanting to worship and have these different idols and they it, they were running a, a real strong economy built around the worship of the black stone and and the idols of the Kaaba and so Muhammad came basically smashing all of these idols except and, and saying there's no God except Allah they were worried that their whole economy would fall apart so when they saw that he actually still would keep the Hajj and still keep all of these um, practices and people still could come to the Qureshi to, to do the Hajj and they could, he could still keep the economy going was still a wealth generator that's actually when they started to cooperate with him uh, and, and feel much much more uh, comfortable about what he was doing but initially there was this huge backlash for the very same reason that we see here in uh, Ephesus so we are in danger to be so he says here you know there's a way to handle these things because look now you've put us all in trouble we are all at risk we are now in danger to be called in question for this day's uproar so this thing was so big that the Roman authorities are going to hear about all of this and they're going to want to know what's going on there being no cause whereby we may give an account of this commotion 
So, so when we're when we're asked what what's going on, there's no legal reason we have to be carrying on like this. So he's telling them basically settle down. And when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. And so you can see how God is protecting Paul and protecting the, the faithful brethren. And just through this basic logic that this uh, leader shares with the people of Ephesus, he was able to just get them to settle down and, and, and leave the assembly. So, so that's uh, Acts chapter 19. And we're now going to come into Acts chapter 20, where, where Paul is now going to leave Ephesus and uh, very, some very interesting uh, counsel that he has for the leaders in Ephesus as he, as, he, as he begins to leave them. And we'll cover that next time. But I certainly hope that you enjoyed and you're getting as much out of these studies as I am. And remember, Jesus Christ is Lord. Thank you.